continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm Justin Burke. We're, we're going to hold off for any any chiming in from other people. Joined tonight by the wonderful producer, Dr. Jessica Kelly. Jess, how's it going? It's going great. Excited to be here. Uh, there's that enthusiasm. Before we get more into that enthusiasm, we're going to tell you tonight about our guest, Dr. Sarah Wood, here discussing pelvic inflammatory disease. But before getting into that, Jess, I'm going to tell you about the show. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the field to bring you clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Awesome. Tonight, we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Wood. Dr. Sarah Wood is a physician scientist with a career mission to improve quality and equitable delivery of sexual and reproductive health care for adolescents and young adults. A former community health worker and HIV tester, Dr. Wood now leads a research lab focused on developing innovative solutions to delivering adolescent care. She provides family planning and HIV treatment and prevention services to adolescents and young adults in Philadelphia. When not hard at work, she is growing food, crafting, and parenting. Dr. Wood teaches us how to approach concerns for PID, when imaging or inpatient admission may be indicated, and how the cool kids treat MGen with moxifloxacin. So without further ado, let's get to it. Jess, this episode is going to it's going to ascend our our most popular episode list. <laughs> I didn't get that. Could you try again? Uh, that was I hope so well timed. Yeah, I hope that Siri is captured on that. If so, we'll, we'll leave it. <laughs> Dr. Sarah Wood, welcome to the Cribsiders. We're so excited to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited to have you. I think this is going to be a great episode. PID is a core topic. Core topic episodes tend to do really well on our podcast. And this is going to be a great one. Before we dive into some content, first, as you may have heard, we're a pretty informal group. We're pretty laid back. And to really kind of commemorate that informality, we usually go by first names. Is it okay if we call you Sarah throughout the show? Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for coming on to the show. We would love to get to know you a little bit better, and our audience would like to get to know you better. Can you give us kind of a one-liner to describe yourself, maybe tell us something about you uh, outside of medicine? Yep. So when I am not spending time as an adolescent medicine physician, I am typically mucking around in the dirt. I am a major gardener. I try to grow something new and weird every year. Last year, I grew loofahs, which most people think come from a creature in the sea, but they're actually a gourd. My house is now full of loofahs, and so you two might get a complimentary box of loofah soap after this episode. I thought a loofah was just something you used to, you know, in the shower to put so I had no idea that those came from gourds. Yes, fun fact, it is, as they say on the Great British Baking Show, a bit of a faff to get through the process, but quite fun. That's amazing. Is the bathing, showering loofah related to the gourd? It, it, oh, my God. I yeah. I thought I was making a hilarious joke of no. self-deprecating your idiot. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mind blown. 
fascinating. Well, my joke totally f- failed, but uh, <laughs> I have a great pearl to walk away with. Amazing. That's cool. Now's like the time the gardening really starts, right? This is the season where you got to start putting the seeds in. What's on the docket for, for this year? Yeah, you know, I think I, I haven't picked out my weird thing yet. I have tons of tomatoes and peppers that are already started growing in my house. I have my greens outside. I'm going to try a bunch of uh, Japanese cold weather crop greens this year and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Jess, how, what, what's your question for the day? Well, we heard you're a big reader, so we would love to hear what a book you suggest is for everyone to read. One of my favorite authors is Patricia Lockwood. She is a young contemporary American poet, but she wrote two amazing books. One is called No One is Talking About This, and it actually, I won't give anything away, but it intersects with pediatrics and the experience of being in a hospital and chronic illness. And she also wrote an incredible memoir called Priest Daddy, which is laugh out loud funny, which is about how her father converted to Catholicism and she ended up being raised by a heavy metal loving conservative Catholic priest. Check it out. It's a great read. I haven't seen either of those. This is amazing. These are good directs. Jess, have you read anything recently? I've got I got a good one. No, I have not. Well, you have a new child, so you get an excuse. But uh Jess, we both have a mutual friend whose name is Sam Mazer, who is also the main character in a book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Which, it. What a great book. Ah, it was uh it was a gem. I've read a couple books by her now just because I liked it so much. But fun video game, great literary references, and co-producer of the show and co-producer of Jess's new child, Sam Mazer, <laughs> is the uh major character. Great. Maybe one other uh, opening question that I always like to ask people is we try to normalize the the failure of adversity in, in medical education and medical programming. And so I always like to ask someone about a failure, something we don't talk a lot about in, in medicine, but to hear about how people who are, who are wildly successful and experts like yourself have had dips in their career, their life, and have overcome and maybe learned something. And do you have a, a favorite failure or a common failure that you think of that maybe is something you you overcame and learned from? Yeah, I think when I was wrapping up, so I had my first kid, second year of residency, and I ended up being a zombie when I finished residency. And I thought I would do, really wanted to do the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Mm. Program because I was really excited about health policy. And I bombed the interview, like catastrophically bombed the interview. And I remember one of the questions was like, so, if you got a call from the current administration that they wanted you to give up seeing patients and move into a career of health policy, what would you say? And I was mm. like, I don't know. <laughs> it was not my most elegant moment. I didn't get in. I was very sad and heartbroken. And now I'm an 80% funded health policy researcher at Penn. So my ah. sort of failure story is, you know, when you are sleep deprived or tired or dealing with other things in life, you may not, you know, always shine as your best self, but life is long, careers are long, there's lots of opportunities. That is very timely advice for me to hear because (laughs) the balance of life and medicine and family can be overwhelming. Yes, and sleep deprivation and sleep deprivation and sleep deprivation. It's a form of torture. It really is. (laughs) 
Well, on that high note, we'll uh, we'll transition to some content. I think I think I do love that story, and I agree. I, the idea of careers being long and so many other opportunities. I, I feel like for me, at least, every new opportunity, it feels like oh no, this is this is my dream job or this is my dream opportunity, and then th- that dream opportunity comes up every three months, and so at a certain point, it's uh, kind of putting things in perspective and realizing there's a lot of opportunities. It's not a single moment. And so definitely something we can all learn from. Something else I'm excited to learn about is pelvic inflammatory disease, which is the topic of today's podcast. And so Jess, do you mind introducing our first case and we'll uh, we'll dive into some some medical talking? Yeah. So this is our case from Cashlack Children's. We have a 16-year-old female who's coming in with one and a half weeks of constant right lower quadrant pain. Her pain, she says, is worse with movement and gets better with Tylenol. She's felt warm, but she hasn't had any fever. She's had one episode of vomiting, and she denies any vaginal discharge or bleeding. Her vital signs of normal, and she's sitting still in bed and has focal tenderness to the right lower quadrant. So hearing this, what kinds of etiologies of right lower quadrant would you consider with this patient? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's always great to start with anatomy, like what lives in the right lower quadrants. We are doing a podcast about PID. So we know PID is going to be in the differential. You're thinking about that right fallopian tube, thinking about the ovary um, and thinking about the uterus, but not lower abdominal pain in an adolescent female is going to be PID. And I will say the number of times I've had a patient admitted up to me with a diagnosis of PID, and it turned out to very much not be PID. If I had a nickel for every time, I would probably get a couple of free train rides around Philly. <laughs> so, you know, also in the right lower quadrant, you're thinking about other GYN tract pathologies. So ovarian cysts, very common, um, and a large cyst, particularly if you have rupture, can be quite painful. The time course here doesn't really fit great for ovarian torsion, but thinking again, too, also sort of related because we usually see see cyst before we see an ovary torse, but thinking about torsion. And then there's all the things that are non-GYN residents of the right lower quadrant. So certainly thinking about appendicitis, thinking about mesenteric adenitis and your GI pathology, thinking about IBD. And then you get into your weirder stuff, psoas, abscess. I've had called up to the floor as PID before, thinking about your musculoskeletal etiologies for pain as well. And this is great. And so I think going in with a broad approach of there's a lot of things that can cause right lower quadrant pain, as you mentioned today, is really focused on PID. And so what are some of those things that maybe you're getting up on history or that the, you know, ED provider who's admitting this patient to you tells a story that does make it sound like, ooh, this this does sound like it might be PID. This This is starting to sound like pelvic inflammatory disease. Yeah, so I think taking a good sexual history is always really helpful. Although I'll also say having been in adolescent medicine for over a decade right now, you can't hang your entire diagnostic workup on the sexual history because for very good reasons, um, teens are not always comfortable with telling us what they're doing or what they're not doing in terms of using a condom or another barrier method. 
when they're having sex. But certainly if someone's disclosing that they are having sex, that's going to go up a little bit more on your differential and thinking about PID. You also brought up some things we want to think about on review of systems. So is there vaginal discharge? Cervicitis, which is usually sort of where our PID is originating, will often present with irregular vaginal bleeding or spotting. So taking a good menstrual history too, particularly looking for our periods heavier? Are you having intramenstrual spotting? Is dysmenorrhea getting worse? Those can all be things that kind of tip you off about PID. Fever is a secondary symptom. You know, certainly it helps to, you know, nail the diagnosis if you have it. Um, but really, one of the things about PID that we'll probably talk about is the bar to a PID diagnosis is incredibly low. And that's really because we'd rather overtreat and prevent negative sequelae, then miss a case and have a young person go on to then have a higher risk of infertility, ectopic pregnancy, or pelvic pain. You talked a little bit about um, cervicitis and how that is a kind of subtype of PID. What other like types of inflammation do you see with PID? Yeah, so most PID, about 85% of cases do come from sexually transmitted organisms, most commonly gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas. What we see is that most of these infections will start with cervicitis, and that's where you really have infection that's localized just to the cervix. It hasn't ascended higher up into the pelvic anatomy. Where we're getting to PID is when we're really seeing ascension of infection that's going beyond that lower tract, and that lower tract, we're thinking about vagina, cervix, urethra, but ascending through the cervix into the uterus. So we're getting endometritis going through the tube, salpingitis, and potentially going out even creating sort of webs or tissue adhesions to the ovary, and then thinking about even more extensive peritonitis or things like Fitzhugh Curtis, where you get some adhesions that are going to the liver capsule. And so maybe talking a little bit about the diagnosis of PID, even before we go through the physical exam, you mentioned cervicitis, you mentioned irregular bleeding and vaginal discharge, and these are obviously all very common symptoms of traditional STIs and, and vaginitis. And What makes it PID? When do we start clinically thinking that there are signs that there has been that ascension? Yeah, so PID is really a very simple diagnosis to make, um, and it's based on just having three criteria. You have cervical motion tenderness, you have uterine tenderness, or you have adnexal tenderness. All you need is any of those three. And what's really important is it's any. You don't need all of them. So I think a lot of the time in med school, PID equals cervical motion tenderness. But you can have an exam where you don't have cervical motion tenderness, but you're tender on that adnexa. That still buys you that criteria of PID as long as you don't have another clear diagnosis you can hang your hat on. And what I mean by that is... If someone has an appy and I do a pelvic exam, they're going to have right nexal tenderness because I am reaching through the vaginal vault and pressing up on that vaginal fornix down on the right lower quadrant, and you're really just jostling the appendix. So um, the reason that I say that is doing the other workup to make sure there's not another clear etiology is important. So getting that ultrasound to look at the appendix if someone's really presenting with right nexal tenderness can be quite helpful. If you find that someone has an appy, 
Sure, they have right adnexal tenderness, but you're not going to call it PID. They have appendicitis. They need to go to the OR. Do you have any tips on performing the physical exam? Like, How would you explain it to someone who maybe hasn't done this since med school? That's a great question. I think the most important thing, and the thing that I say to every single patient, whether I am putting in an IUD, doing a pelvic exam for PID, or getting a pap smear, is letting the patient know that they're really in the driver's seat. And I use that language, hey, we're going to do an exam. It's really important. And this is how I would explain it for PID. It's really important to do this exam because this can help us know there's an infection that we can just use simple antibiotics to treat and send you home, or if there could be a more serious infection that's in the uterus or the tubes that we're going to need to give you an injection of medicine and a longer course of antibiotics for. So what I've done right there is given them the why of doing that exam, and and most people want to know that. Um, Why can't you just send something to the lab? Why can't you just check my pee? And then I always say, you're in the driver's seat. Is there anything that I can do that's going to help you feel more comfortable? So I've done PID exams while we've listened to Taylor Swift at the patient's request. I have had someone's mom slash friend slash boyfriend hold their hand or brought an extra medical assistant in the room because we always have to take a trauma-informed perspective to how we provide care. And unfortunately, you know, sobering statistic, but we know about 15 to 20 percent of young women by the time they get through college age may have had some form of sexual assault before. So that's a very high statistic. We want to make sure that we're really centering patient experience and making them comfortable during that exam. So that's kind of the setting the stage part. Once the person knows why you're doing the exam, I talk about what I'm going to do during the exam. So I'm going to have gloves on both hands. There's going to be some gel on two of my fingers. I'm going to place one finger and then a second finger inside the vagina, and then I'm going to be pressing down on your belly with my other gloved hand. And then you want to tell people what they should be looking for, because this is a subjective exam. We're not going to feel something necessarily. It's really going to be what the patient is feeling. So I'll often say for many people, this isn't the most comfortable exam. You may feel something that feels like a lot of pressure or a sensation like you need to pee. Pro tip, definitely give people the opportunity to go to the bathroom and empty their bladder before the exam. But then if you feel something that feels like a very sharp pain or is very uncomfortable for you, I want you to let me know. So that way the patient's educated for what we're looking for. So then in terms of actually technically doing the exam, similar from that trauma-informed perspective, you never want to go straight into doing the exam. You want to get your patient positioned really well on the table. And if this is too much detail, guys, stop me. But I think a lot of the time in pediatrics, we don't get this far. No, this is so helpful. So, you know, you want your patient to be able to comfortably do a pelvic exam to actually kind of have the edge of their butt hanging off the edge of the table. And the reason for that, and it's like two inches of bum kind of off the the table edge, is that it relaxes the pelvic floor muscles. So their kind of gravity is pushing down. It's harder for them to tense back up off the bed. And so it just makes them more comfortable. But I'm also going to explain that to my patient, just like we talked about explaining. I'm going to have you scoot down. It's going to feel like you're going to fall off the table. I promise you're not going to fall off the table. The reason I do this is it's actually going to make the exam more comfortable for you. 
Similarly, for a lot of patients, they're going to kind of pull their knees together and tense up before the exam as well. One thing you don't want to do is ever sort of forcibly open someone's legs or knees, again, from a trauma-informed perspective that can be distressing. So what I usually do is I take both hands and I place them outside of each of the knees. So sort of my hands are outside of the knees. And I just say, can you just let your knees fall out towards my hand? Another way you can do it is say, just pretend your knees are going to touch the walls. Just let them fall outwards towards the wall. So I'm not moving the patient's body. The patient is really in control. They're doing all of that movement. And then when it's time for me to do the exam, I have gloves on both hands. I have jelly on my finger. You always want to rotate so your palm up, um, so your knuckles are down towards the floor. You'll let the patient know what you're doing before you do it. Insert one finger and then a second. And you're going to feel back for the cervix. Do you guys remember from med school what they always tell you the cervix feels like? A ripe strawberry. I don't know. Some type of fruit? Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I remember the, the med school. It's not as weird as one of our many strangely gross medical food analogies. Um, it feels like the tip of your nose was the way it was always told to me. And oh, it actually does. So it feels like a smooth plane of tissue. It's firmer than everything else. And your goal is really to get your two fingers, pads of the fingers up to the ceiling underneath the cervix, and you're lifting the cervix up towards the belly at the same time as you're kind of starting up at the belly button with your hand that is out on the abdomen, sweeping downwards towards the pubis. And so you're basically moving the cervix up towards the ceiling, pushing down on the uterus. And so as you're sweeping down, if they're tender, that's the uterine tenderness. They're tender when you're pressing up. That's your cervical motion tenderness. And once you've done that part of the exam, you're moving your fingers first to the right fornix. So that's the area that's going to be just to the right of the cervix. And same thing, starting up kind of almost like by the iliac crest, you're just doing sweeps of that outer hand down as you're pressing up with your two fingers. It's unusual to feel an ovary if you feel one. It weirdly feels like a goldfish um, swimming under your fingers. It's just like this little flicker of tissue. But really, any tenderness in that exam that's beyond the, wow, I wish you weren't doing this, this is a lot of pressure or is uncomfortable, that kind of meets your PID criteria. Again, our bar is quite low. And I know this is something that sometimes in patients, there's been some question of, was that just discomfort or pain? And I don't know that I've, I think I've diagnosed maybe two or three, been the person who diagnosed like high likelihood of a TOA or PID. And they were pretty remarkable. You know, it was like this quote chandelier sign or the patient was extreme. Is that the typical positive cervical motion tenderness or adnetal tenderness? Is it like, this is notable, this is not confusing? Yeah, I would say nine out of 10 times it's notable and not confusing. You really, you're you're in the area where you should be localizing and they are having pain beyond just having the, ex- the discomfort of having the exam done. There definitely have been cases though, and I have done a lot of pelvic exams where I'm like, ah, I'm equivocal mm. at the end of yeah. that exam. You know, the patient was uncomfortable and it's often a situation, again, where the entire exam was uncomfortable for the patient. You know, certainly if you have a patient who, you know, has vaginismus, so involuntary spasm of the vaginal muscle when you go in to do the exam and is uncomfortable pretty much from the second you start the exam until the end, it can be really difficult to tease out, oh, was it right when I pressed on the cervix or not? 
And again, it's sort of like when in doubt you treat, the sequelae of missing it are too high. And I am usually quite clear with my patients about this too. Like, this is a diagnosis that I can't send a test and just give you this diagnosis. This is really going to be based on our clinical judgment. I want to make sure that you get the best possible treatment. And so what I'd like to do is, and then explaining the antibiotic course. And do you ever have to use a speculum? I feel like that's something in pediatrics where like, you don't have one in your clinic. Is that something you need to make a diagnosis of PID or is it just a bimanual exam? Yeah, it's really the bimanual. I think speculum exams have fallen out of favor a lot. And I think there are two views on that. One is sort of like, it's a potentially uncomfortable exam that doesn't give you that much more information. So what can you get by doing the spec exam? You can see if there's visual signs of cervicitis, right? So do you have a red cervix? Do you have a cervix that's friable? So if I touch it with a Q-tip, is it bleeding? Um, is there copious discharge coming from the cervix? All of those will support your PID diagnosis. On the flip side, you can kind of make the case that, well, if someone has pain, it doesn't matter what all those things are. You're going to treat them anyway. So I personally feel like a speculum exam can be helpful, but it's not something that anybody feels like they should need to do um, to be able to get that diagnosis. I think this is really helpful because in adults, we often think about doing the speculum exam, but it really doesn't necessarily offer that much more data, especially it feels like if you're trying to do a differential of the abdominal pain, you might help determine if there is some type of vaginal discharge. But to your point, if you have cervical motion tenderness, you're already going to be calling it PID. And so there's not too much data added. This is fascinating. This is cool. In looking at the diagnosis, are there other things that can be helpful? I know you mentioned you wanting to rule out appendicitis. If we were to get an ultrasound or let's say there was a trigger happy emergency medicine fellow and there's a CT scan, you know, is this showing up on imaging? Are there other things that we should be ordering? Are there general diagnosis, either labs or imaging that are helpful to diagnose pelvic inflammatory disease? It's a great question. So again, we talked about kind of our minimum criteria are really low, um, but our supporting criteria are going to be things like fever, leukocytosis. And I think certainly sending a gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trick test is going to be helpful. But about 15% of the time in cases of PID, we actually don't find one of those sexually transmitted pathogens. So that's not information you're going to get back while you're sitting in the ER, unless you're lucky enough to have point of care testing, which very few places have. And so, you know, the other question that we often think about is to get the ultrasound or to not get the ultrasound. If you're going to get imaging, get the ultrasound. You know, part of the reason for that is, as we all know, ultrasound's dynamic imaging. Um, I have definitely seen cases of PID where the tube is involved or there's adhesions that are going to the ovary and there's tubal torsion or ovarian torsion that's associated. So some benefit to to doing uh, ultrasound rather than CT, because you can look at the Doppler, you get a better sense of what flow looks like and what's happening in real time. And in general, tubo ovarian abscess, I would love to say that you're going to pick it up on exam. I picked up one, one exam in my whole career where I felt it and I was like, that's a massive TOA. But most of the time, you're not going to see that. And we do treat TOA differently. And so I think you're never wrong to get the ultrasound ultrasound, if someone is already at the point where they're coming to the ER 
or you think they're going to require hospitalization, just get the imaging. That said, in your primary care office, if the patient looks well enough that you would send them out the door anyway, they're not ill-appearing, they're not febrile, they're able to eat and drink, it's really okay to do the exam, make the diagnosis, treat, um, but then bring them back in 48 hours to see how they're doing. You mentioned the tubo-ovarian abscess on, on the exam. I remember there was a very humbling experience I had in residency where I remember being in the PZD and it was, you know, I was a senior, I was feeling great. And the the one-liner was a, a 15-year-old woman with abdominal pain and six days hadn't stooled. And I very cockily turned to the attending and was like, do I even need to see this patient? Can I just give them Miralax? I was joking, but the you know, attending was like, no, you really need to. And this was one of those cases where the patient looked pretty sick to the point where it was like, okay, yeah, we got to do a, you know, it's lower abdominal, we got to do a pelvic exam. And there was right adenatal tenderness that, again, was just so marked that it was like one of those cases that I feel like is very, very memorable on the exam. Um, so we're talking as an outpatient provider, if we feel very confident based on the history and some tenderness on exam, we feel pretty confident that we can do outpatient diagnosis of PID, start the PID treatment, which we'll talk about, and then have close monitoring to make sure there's improvement. If we're in an ED setting, things like ultrasound can help rule out appendicitis, can help look for complications of the ascending infection like tubo-ovarian abscess, I guess, but also just torsion and looking at the Doppler dynamics. We can get gonorrhea chlamydia. We can get some blood work looking for leukocytosis. Anything else as part of the diagnostic workup if we're in an emergency department that might be a plus or a minus? You know, plus or minus, and this is sometimes that something you can do in primary care as well, is get a vaginal wet mount and you're looking for white blood mm. cells per high-powered field, certainly if you're seeing, you know, sheets of whites when you look. That said, I think microscopy is kind of a dying art. I don't know how many people have a microscope in their primary care office or feel really comfortable using it. So, and again, it's a diagnosis where as much as we can, we want to decomplicate it, Right not a big medical workup. So the biggest thing to know in a primary care office is that decision of, does this patient feel appropriate for outpatient management of PID? Or is it someone that I should send in for the imaging, that I should send in for potential hospitalization? You know, so I think the patients where we really think about making that decision, and the CDC has nice criteria on this, is you know if your patient is vomiting and not going to be able to complete the oral antibiotics, they need to go in. If you're worried that there could be another surgical process in going on that you can't roll out, they should go in. If you're concerned that there could be a TOA, so if there's something nagging in the back of your head, you know that adnexal tenderness was so focal, maybe they felt a little full on that side of the pelvic exam, they should go in. And someone who you're really worried is just not going to be able to adhere to the antimicrobial therapy. And that's an important one in pediatrics because there's definitely adolescents who we treat outpatient for PID who do great. And then there's adolescents that we treat outpatient for PID who we just know are not necessarily going to be able to be on top of the antibiotics. So people who have sort of, and I, I, I'll tell you, most of the time the patients tell you this. <laughs> I'm not going to be able Dr. Wood, I'm not going to be able to take this medication. You know, patients that are homeless and then the other population of folks that we think about hospitalizing or at least getting an ER evaluation as pregnant individuals. 
One of the tests you mentioned, the gonorrhea chlamydia, about 15% might be negative and not ultimately have gonorrhea chlamydia. For those 15%, what's going on? Did we just miss gonorrhea chlamydia? Are there other pathogens that are causing it? Is it not sexually transmitted infection? What's going on in that 15%? Yes, 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 and yes. Um, you hit it all. So um, a, a few buckets of people to kind of think about. So one is um, the question of, are we missing gonorrhea and chlamydia? Yes. In a lot of those cases, I think we are. And so I just had an editorial come out in Annals of Family Medicine this week um, on a study that was looking at the differential sensitivity of urine uh, aptima for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trick versus doing vaginal sampling. And most places, and I think particularly in a lot of pediatric settings, we really just do urine. It's the easiest test to get. We don't do a lot of GYN procedures, I think, as pediatric pediatricians, folks tend to be a little less comfortable talking about vaginal swabbing. It's about 7 to 8% less sensitive than doing a vaginal swab. So if you kind of extrapolate that out to the massive numbers of chlamydia that we see in this country every year, we miss tens of thousands of cases of chlamydia probably annually by doing urine sampling. So I would say in someone where your index of suspicion is high or you have PID even on the differential, if you can do a vaginal swab versus doing a urine you're going to have better odds of catching the pathogen and you know when we think about that from a pathophys perspective with PID you know we're talking about ascending infection up through the uterus when we are getting a urine specimen we're really looking for urethral organisms and most that's great in men but in people who are female sex at birth actually most of the bacterial load's going to be in the cervix so better to go as close to the source as you can so can you do um, self swab or do you do provider swab what do you recommend you do whatever the patient wants um you know you can offer either those are there's no sensitivity difference in doing self swab by the patient or provider swab as long as you can um explain well what the patient needs to do and again, getting down to uh, all the details of what I usually say, I'll say you want to get the swab as far back into the vagina as you can. Easiest way to do that is either lay down on your back, bend your knees, feet on the table, and just insert back as far as it can go, go around in five circles, and then pop it back in the paper thing with the Q-tip side up or squat down, you know, just squat or take it with you to the bathroom and bring it back out. Those are all positions where they're going to be able to get as far back to the cervix as they can. And so, yeah, works just as well if we do it or if they do it. And I would also say my predictive powers of guessing what patients want with that are probably no better than a coin flip. <laughs> you know, generally I'll sort of be like, oh, this person's going to totally want to do it. And they'll be like, Dr. Wood, no way I'm going to mess this up. Can you just do it for me? Um, and then similarly, patients where I'm like, well, since I'm already doing the pelvic exam, do you want me to just get the vaginal swab who have been like, absolutely not. I want to do it myself. So really giving people that sort of power to decide. I think the second reason that sometimes we gonorrhea and chlamydia or trick is the cause and we don't get it is that the infection has already ascended. So we're beyond the cervix, the heavier bacterial load is going to be in the tube or in the uterus. And we're just, we've kind of missed our opportunity to find it. The sort of next 
bunch of people in whom we tend to be, fall in that 15% of we don't find our pathogen are probably anaerobic commensal organisms that you know hang out normally in the genital tract that we just have overgrowth of. And so there's a number of different both aerobes and anaerobes that live in the tract that we can just see grow out of proportion. So um, urea plasma is thought to be a common cause of this sort of culture negative PID. And and then the third is sort of emerging pathogens. So our newest kid on the block with PID is Mycoplasma genitalium. Um, we are learning more about this every year. We just have our first commercially available test for MGen, as we like to call it, mm. um, just came that out about cool. two years ago. And most labs aren't even, most hospital systems aren't routinely testing yet. So I think as we move towards thinking more about MGen, testing more for MGen in PID, probably going to find that it makes up a substantial burden of those cases in which um, we previously weren't able to find an organism. This is amazing. So it sounds like we're missing some gonorrhea, chlamydia. It might just be that it's already ascending. It might be overgrowth of some active bacterial flora that is just becoming pathogenic in this case, or that it's one of these newer pathogens like MGen, which I am fat. I didn't know that was the that's I feel cool very hip That's now. what the cool yeah, things the, call it. This is amazing. Yeah. I feel like that was one of my favorite parts of adolescent was always asked, learning about some of the cool slang, not usually related to vaginal pathogens, but of, you know, on fleek and all these other oh, yeah. terms that uh, I can use now to, to sound cool. I have terrible news for you, Justin. We never sound cool. We think uh, we I, sound cool. We try. That's all that matters. We're just not cool anymore. Cool is a mindset. If, uh, you know, the adolescents might not agree, but I think we can embrace it. I, I think we're still cool in our own way. That's, uh, I don't know, that's what I try to tell myself. And so while we're closing up kind of the workup and diagnosis of PID, should we also be thinking about other short-term complications of PID? Like, are, are we checking, you know, for two ovarian abscesses? Are we looking at LFTs to rule out Fitzhugh Curtis, you know, what are the complications that we might also want to be checking for in someone we think might have PID? Yeah, you know, as we talked about, I think that the the TOA question is always one that's looming large. And if you have a patient who is ill appearing, who is just markedly tender on exam, you know, if you're in a situation where you got the labs and someone's left shifted, has a CRP, get the ultrasound. I would just say if you're in the ultra, you know, if you're in the ER and you have access to an ultrasound, no one's going to fault you um, for getting that pelvic ultrasound. Fitzhugh Curtis is actually a really interesting one because uh, I think there's a lot of misconception that when someone has PID and they have Fitzhugh Curtis, you actually have liver involvement on a cellular level. But really with Fitzhugh Curtis, you're thinking about capsular in inflammation and the setting of kind of having almost a generalized peritonitis from PID. So I had a really interesting case a couple of weeks ago in the hospital where we had a young woman who was admitted diagnosis that was told to me when she came in was she had PID. I looked at her labs, looked at her imaging. You know, she had right lower quadrant pain, but she also had a big right lower quadrant 
ovarian cyst um, that looked like it was sort of mid-rupture. And so, you know, certainly that could have been the cause of that right lower quadrant pain. But more notably, she had ALT, AST that were in the two to 300 range. And when I talked to the team about it, they said, oh yeah, well, we just assumed this was Fitzhugh Curtis. And the sort of teaching point when there was like, guys, this is not Fitzhugh Curtis. Fitzhugh Curtis, you're not going to see those hepatocytes bump. And, you know, long story short, it's sort of, thank God she came in. And because we were able to get the GI team involved, get a liver workup done, and it turns out that she had autoimmune hepatitis. So again, we don't want to anchor on that diagnosis um, because PID is so easy to diagnose. It's kind of easy to think that everything under the sun is PID, but really keeping your differential broad, thinking about all the different things um, that could be going on and not chalking up all of the different pathology that you see in a patient just to PID. I love that the pearl that the hepatocytes aren't involved. So you're not going to see elevated LFTs in Fitzhugh Curtis. That's a, that's a great learning point. Yeah, that's a great case. Um, so you've mentioned a couple of times that we want to set the bar really low for diagnosing PID because we don't want to miss it. We worry about the complications. What kind of disparities exist when we're diagnosing PID? Yeah, so it's interesting with um, both with STI diagnosis in general and in PID diagnosis, we tend to jump to a PID diagnosis more quickly in Black and Latinx um, young people than we do in white adolescents. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of my research is in this area. I did a study on chlamydia screening, and it turns out that, and I'll preface this by saying, pediatricians want to do the right thing for their patients. And we are also all subject to implicit bias. So, you know, I looked at about 40,000 adolescents who came in for well visits over a five-year period and looked at who got screened for chlamydia, who didn't. I'll leave all the boring stats out. It was a complicated model. But when you got down to the level of the individual clinician, individual clinicians were 88% more likely to test their black versus their white patients for chlamydia who had the same risk factors. Similarly, we tend to see with PID that we do, um, and pediatricians do, uh, tend to anchor. If you see abdominal pain in an adolescent female and that abdominal pain is in the lower region, tend to anchor early on PID and tend to anchor early on that diagnosis disproportionately in Black and Latina young people than they do in white people. And it's interesting because I've had sort of people be like, well, is that really bias or is that really bad? Because they're actually, you know, getting the diagnosis early on. <laughs> and yeah, it's bias. You know, number one, they're potentially getting the wrong diagnosis. So just because you're getting a diagnosis of PID or someone's thinking about it, that doesn't mean that you're not getting your appy missed, right? So there's those other, when we make these implicit jumps to a certain diagnosis, we miss the correct diagnosis. I think the second piece of that is that a lot of this comes from a type of implicit bias called adultification, where in general, Black and African-American young women are tend to see be seen as more sexualized, less in need of protection, more likely to be, you know, quote unquote, risky than their white peers. And even if that means they're more likely to, for instance, get a screening service that they should get, it also means that those types of biases probably heavily negatively influence a lot of interactions um, with medical providers. Uh, yeah, that sounds like a complicated relationship, but it's fascinating and, and important to be, I think, aware of 
that bias so that we're cognizant of those biases, which is then we're going to miss autoimmune hepatitis because we just assumed that it was as PID and not uh, break the anchor. That's helpful to be aware of as, as we as we see these patients. We've talked a lot about diagnosis, which is something that Jess and I love to do. But the one thing that Jess and I love to do more than diagnosing, what is it, Jess? Treat. Treating. We love treating. We we love treating. We love making patients get better. Let's talk about patients with PID. What are we doing for treatment? And let's say it's an outpatient workup, because that I think might be the, the best for learning, where we have a patient who has a history of unprotected sets, maybe has some vaginal discharge, has cervical motion tenderness, is willing to try outpatient therapy. What are we doing for this patient? Yep. So for those patients, most of your empiric coverage is really going to be focused on nailing gonorrhea and chlamydia. So our oral regimens that we're thinking about for patients who are, um, you know, look like they're meeting all those criteria for outpatient treatment, we're going to do ceftriaxone, we're going to do doxycycline, and we're going to do flagell. And this is actually a treatment shift because a few years ago, we did 250 of ceftriaxone and 100 of doxy twice a day for 14 days. And one of the things that happened is we just recently upped our ceftriaxone doses in the context of seeing more gonorrhea resistance. And I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to the news, but we now have extensively resistant gonorrhea in the United States. So our dose is 500 now, and I believe that 500 dose is for people who weigh less than 100 kilos. If you're above 100 kilos, it's 1,000 milligrams of ceftriaxone plus your doxycycline, and now plus your flagell. So thinking about that anaerobic coverage as well. So it's all three agents. And I bring that up because it's a tough regimen for a lot of people to take. And so again, you know, informing your patients about what you are asking them to do, explaining what the potential side effects of the antibiotics are, and making sure they're well prepared for those potential side effects is going to be really important. And so specifically, you give them a dose of ceftriaxone, like 500 milligrams in the clinic, and then send them home on two weeks of, I'm guessing, 100 milligrams of doxy, BID, and then flagell is? Flagell's 500 twice a day for 14 days. Sounds really bad and, on the stomach. Yeah, it's rough on the belly for sure. And just for, for clarification, flagell's metronidazole. <laughs> oh, we that, messed uh, that up. Sorry, sorry Justin. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> for all the, for the CME people, you can just ignore... It's metronidazole. We we there was uh there was some audio issues, but metronidazole <laughs> was the third medication. And uh, that'll be fine. That well, our bases are covered. Sorry about that, guys. I was warned. <laughs> um, I'm hanging on the edge of my seat because earlier you had mentioned that TOA is treated differently. Do you think you could just touch on that really briefly? Yeah. So, you know, with TOA, you are thinking about a longer course of parenteral or IV antibiotics. So anytime that there's TOA, you're bringing someone into the hospital. We never treat TOA outpatient. And in that case, we're often doing cefoxetin um, plus doxycycline plus flagell. I think there used to be a lot of interest in um, clindagent. That's sort of more of an alternative now. So it's usually either cefetitan um, plus doxy or cefoxetin plus doxy. Plus metronidazole. Uh, and metronidazole. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, it's hard to untrain <laughs> that brain. I, I hear you. I hear you. It's another. It's another one of those exercises that this is making us do. Um, that makes a lot of sense. So tubo variant abscess always IV. So always going into the hospital regardless. Yeah, always going into the hospital. Guidelines are at least twenty four hours of you know monitoring. And in general, you know these cases. Talking to our surgical colleagues, there's a lot of inflammation in the belly. And so your goal is really to get that antibiotic therapy in as early as possible. We try not to go in surgically, if at all possible, until you've gotten, you know, enough antibiotic in to calm things down. Certainly, you know, if you can get IR drainage done, if it's getting to the point that you need to intervene, that's going to be um, probably the best bet for procedure. But first goal is to get whatever's going down in the belly to calm down before anything else happens. And you had mentioned that if we're going to do outpatient treatment, we want to bring them back in 48 hours. And so let's say just to make it complicated, it's a Friday, we opt to bring them back on Monday. So we're pushing it 72 hours. Are we repeating a pelvic exam? If there's still tenderness, does that mean something? What, what are we doing on that, that short follow-up exam? Yeah, it's a great point. Traditionally, what we, we have done is repeated the pelvic exam and really still having tenderness does not mean they have failed therapy. But if the tenderness is worse is evolving, if they are now vomiting, if they were afebrile before and they're febrile now, those are all reasons that maybe, you know, if this is a patient that you were treating outpatient, they need to get that imaging done. Do you ever trend inflammatory markers? Is that something that you would see as... You know, I don't know that there's any data on it. It's not something I've ever done. It's not in the guidelines. I think it's really so much of this diagnosis is the clinical exam. And even when people are inpatient, really, there's no, hey, here's a specific length of time for which you need to do the IVs, except that minimum of 24 hours with the TOA. The goal is really that you switch to oral therapy when their pain is improved. And often their pain's not gone. You know, they may still be having some discomfort. They may be a little bit achy, but they should be able to get up. They should be able to walk around. They should not be, you know, looking or sounding or acting peritonitic in any way. And if by this time the urine gonorrhea or chlamydia have come back positive, it's really not affecting our treatment. Is that right? That's correct. Once you start on that treatment track, there's no looking back. You are The train has left the station and you have your antibiotics on board and you're just taking them through the 14 days other than the ceftriaxone because that's one and done. But your doxycycline and your metronidazole Excellent. Uh, are, it. are going for your full 14 days. Beautiful. When might you retest someone for gonorrhea and chlamydia? Like, does it stay positive for 90 days like COVID or? <laughs> yeah. No, we, we don't have rules about that. You can't go back to school or work until you show evidence <laughs> of your negative test. Um, but, it, but it brings up a great question that uh, our typical tests for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas are NATS, nucleic acid amplification tests, and they're still going to pick up signal from dead organism, right? So there is no magic answer to how long those tests will stay positive, but most of us who do this a lot will tell you three to four weeks. The guidelines now re 
really say that you are retesting at three months, and that's really a test for reinfection, not a test of cure. The one area where we do do test of cure, and this is getting a little farther north than PID, but pharyngeal gonorrhea, um, just because we see most antimicrobial resistance emerging from the throat, we do actually do test of cure in the throat. The CDC recommendation is two to four weeks after two weeks, the false positive rate is super high. Um, in my practice, we do four weeks. And just a plug here to also say that when we took our excellent sexual history at the beginning of this vignette, we also asked our patients about what part of her body she was using to have sex. Because certainly someone with uh, who's coming in with symptoms where we're thinking about PID or anyone where we're doing STI testing, you know, you really want to do that testing any site they're using anatomically. So pharynx if they're having oral sex, rectum if they're having anal sex, um, vagina or urine if they are having vaginal or penile intercourse. And we can edit this out if I'm off base and incorrect in this argument. But in, am I right in that the CDC guidance for adults now actually is to do triple testing regardless of the endorsement of receptive intercourse? And part of that rationale is that an anal swab might actually be helpful to pick up even vaginal intercourse. Is that right? And is that true for adolescents or no? So my understanding, and I could, I could be wrong, so we can look this up, is that that is the recommendation, I think, just in men who CDC calls men who have sex with men, which is really men mm. and trans women and non-binary people who mm. have sex with men. Um, right. And um, that's because we see higher rates of multi-site STIs. But your point about rectal testing and vaginal infection or urethral infection is really good. We actually, um, there's at the CDC STD prevention conference this year, there's actually a number of abstracts that talked about how people auto-inoculate themselves, probably, um, from the vagina to the rectum, or that partners kind of inoculate them just because there's a lot of fluid in a lot of places and things happen. Um, so even if there's not a history of penetrative sex, you might still end up getting a positive swab. Can I ask a couple of questions about IUDs? Yes. So I guess... Do IUDs increase your risk for PID? Do they climb up and get into your reproductive tract? <laughs> so they don't. Um, I think this is like a, a one of those common half myths. Um, because if you do read the package insert, and if you read most sort of, if you go to the gynecologist's office and you're going to get an IUD, it will talk about increased risk of infection. That increased risk of PID really is only present if someone has active cervicitis at the time you put the IUD in. Once the IUD is in and you get gonorrhea and chlamydia, you are just going to have gonorrhea and chlamydia like everybody else. The IUD should not alter the course of the illness. But it's one of the reasons that every time we do an IUD insertion, we do that gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trick swab, um, because if it's positive on the day of insertion, we really want to treat immediately, assess for symptoms, um, because that's where that's when we see the risk. If you diagnose someone with PID and they want an IUD for contraception, how long would you wait before you placed it? Yeah, so typically two to four weeks. Um, you want to make sure that you know if someone has PID, that's that full two week treatment. Um, and you know, I may be speaking out of turn, and so I'll take a look at the guidelines momentarily. Um, but our practice is usually to wait four weeks because you're kind of getting through that period of PID, and then you could potentially retest without just finding that old um, organism, that old infection. 
that expert opinion is still warranted. You know, it's one of those things too, where if we, if it's good enough for your clinic, it's definitely good enough for our <laughs> clinic. So th- those are, those are equally helpful guidelines. All right. Um, so let's say that now we have this patient, we're doing outpatient treatment. They come back in a couple of days. They don't seem to be getting better. It's kind of tough to say, but we want to be on the safe side. We admit them. They go to the hospital for directly observed therapy and making sure we're not missing anything. But really, they're still symptomatic. And we know that they're taking all their medications. They're in the hospital, so they're not presumably having new exposures to to gonorrhea, chlamydia. Is there anything different in a patient who's having prolonged symptoms after a PID infection? Yeah. So, you know, interestingly, one of the biggest sequelae of PID is chronic pelvic pain. So in the follow-up studies, the biggest study in the US that's sort of an observational trial of people with PID is the PEACH study. And they found that I think it was uh, 25 to 30% of people in follow-up did go on and have lingering um, sort of remitting and relapsing uh, pelvic pain. So it's really tough to know in those patients is it that they are having almost sort of like that visceral hypersensitivity that we see in some kids, um, you know, are chronic abdominal pain players where they get gastro and then they have this sort of lingering ongoing belly pain? Is it that they have micro adhesions um, and inflammation in the belly? But you also have to think about, you know, if this is someone where it's really in this sort of immediate period post PID, are we missing an organism, right? And so I think this is where our guidelines have started to shift a little bit more, knowing that we can catch gonorrhea and chlamydia, but there may be these other players at hand um, where we have different treatment options, we're using different antibiotics, and we don't want to miss them. So I mentioned before MGen, mycoplasma genitalium, and it's an organism that can be found normally in the genitourinary tract, but is found more frequently or in an unusual proportion or disproportionately in the GU tract of individuals who have pelvic inflammatory disease. And so there's more and more data to sort of show that this may be a key player in the people who have that persistent PID symptomatology that there might be MGen at play. And this gets tricky because we have a different antimicrobial route that we are going to go down if we're thinking about mycoplasma genitalium. What do you add to cover for it? So this is where it gets tough. Um, There are very high rates of macrolide resistance in uh, mycobacteria genitalium, and there's emerging higher rates of azithro resistance too. And so what we found is that the thing that tends to work best are quinolones, and in particularly moxifloxacin. So the, the recommendation is really depending on whether or not you're able to test for MGen and send resistance testing, or if you are not able to get the resistance testing. I will tell you right now, in the United States, actually sending the MGen NAT and getting the resistance testing can be a kind of lengthy process. So that's not always something that's going to be feasible. We have our thing we want to do in the best of situations, but a lot of the time we're not practicing medicine in the best of situations. So, you know, if 
you um, send your test for Amgen, and I cannot commercially endorse any test on this uh, CME podcast, but you can Google um, <laughs> Mgen testing, and it'll tell you which of the major reference labs do it and how to send the swab if your hospital doesn't do it. And it comes back positive for Mgen. Really, the recommendation is to do doxycycline 100 twice a day for seven days, and then follow it up with moxifloxacin, 400 milligrams once daily for seven days. So it's you're actually kind of doing a two-step treatment, trying to wipe it out um, or at least get your disease burden down with the doxy, and then adding the moxifloxacin. If you happen to be somewhere where you can get that resistance test back quickly, the CDC has great guidelines on what you do if you're macrolide sensitive or if you're macrolide resistant. Um, but I think when in doubt, doxy, moxy is the way to go. So doxy, doxycycline followed by moxifloxacin. And would you ever empirically treat someone for Imgen with moxifloxacin? If you didn't have access to that testing? Would I? Yes. And I have. Um, you know, there's definitely situations in which, you know, we see patients at homeless shelters. You know, we can't always send the best test in every circumstance. I think you always are weighing for that, you know, you want to be a good antimicrobial steward, but you also want to treat the patient. And so if I have someone who has been, sorry, that was my dog. If I have a patient who has been treated for PID, they are insistent that they finished their first line antibiotics. They have not had a po opportunity to get re-exposed. They're still having symptoms. Then seven days of moxifloxacin is not unreasonable. That's cool. That's a great expert opinion, Pearl, I think. I, I That's a good take home. One thing that I think we should always talk about with PID is if untreated, are there other long-term consequences of, of PID or missed PID? Yeah, absolutely. And this is where we tend to worry the most and why we set that bar absolutely so low um, for diagnosing PID. So the main complications that you're going to find are going to be infertility, which is usually what we consider tubal factor infertility. So there's scarring or adhesions in the tubes, ectopic pregnancy, and chronic pelvic pain. And they're actually really kind of shockingly common. So if you look at that PEACH study, about 18% of women who had PID with you know, three years later, 18% had infertility or challenges conceiving, almost 30% had chronic pelvic pain, and almost 1% had had an ectopic pregnancy, which is a rare event. So um, really the take-home messages are, these aren't rare sequelae, they are common sequelae, they cause a high degree of morbidity. And importantly, you know, quality of life for our patients, the chronic pelvic pain, infertility, there's an emotional and psychological component that goes along with that too. So we want to do everything we can to prevent that. And then lastly, you know, I always have to say this because I'm an HIV specialist um, in my number one real job um, is that we know that adolescents who have sexually transmitted infections are at higher risk of getting HIV. Um, and that's both due to the fact that at the time that they have PID or an STI, they have genital tract inflammation that makes them more susceptible. But also, you know, they, it's kind of 
evidence that you're having non-condom protected sex. So there's a behavioral mechanism too. So always thinking about for a patient who has PID, talking to them about HIV prevention, making sure they get an HIV test and talking to them about PrEP, which is HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. I think that's a great point. We can get our CBC, our inflammatory studies, and then offer um, HIV and even syphilis testing. We offer a lot. Yeah. Um, Syphilis is very much on the rise. And if you're in a major city in the US, just send the syphilis test. It's, it's, It's out there. Um, So to wrap things up, if you are treating someone for PID, what are you going to tell them about having sex? What kind of anticipatory guidance do you give? And are you ever giving them a prescription to hand to their partner? Two great questions. So the first one in terms of when to have sex, so they need to finish all of their antibiotics and their partner and or partners need to finish all of their antibiotics as well. So we do talk about partner notification. It's important that you let your partners know. It's important that they get treated as well. Um, Certainly, if it's someone that you're going to have sex with again, you want to wait until you are both treated before you have sex and that you've finished all doses of your antibiotics and use condoms uh, to the best of your ability. Um, Certainly, best method of preventing um, acquisition of another infection other than just not having sex, which, you know, a lot of the time people kind of come out of this experience and they're like, I'm never going to have sex again, Dr. Wood. And I'm like, no, but you should, you know, sex is important. And it's something that's part of your healthy, happy life. So let's talk about how you can do it in a way that's not going to super stress you out, which means, you know, having sex, feeling comfortable, feeling protected, communicating with your partner and doing the things you both need to do to prevent future infections. I think in terms of do we give people prescriptions, I'm so glad you brought that up. So one of the CDC recommendations for preventing sexually transmitted infections is expedited partner therapy. And that involves giving your patient and the person who has the infection either a prescription for antibiotics or actual antibiotics to give to their partner. I think I am super excited to talk about this because I'm in Pennsylvania and we have been an EPT gray state for many, many years, which means that EPT was permissible, but not actually legally protected. So if you did it as a physician, you can get sued. And after a lot of advocacy, the Pennsylvania legislature just a few months ago made it explicitly legal to do EPT. So what I would say is that, you know, if you're doing EPT, it is important to know what your state laws are. The CDC has a nice map. It's important to know what your institutional policies and practices are. But really, it's actually one of the best ways we can prevent forward transmission. And I think that's particularly salient in our pediatric population because we know adolescents are less likely to seek care. We know our patient was able to come in, but we don't know anything about their partners or whether or not they're going to be able to access care. And so this is a way to really break that chain of transmission. That's great. I feel, you know, we do a lot of EPT where we are, though sometimes it's difficult just logistically in that you have to get their name, date of birth and like physically call it in, which doesn't seem like that much, but you're so used to this electronic prescribing. And if they're not a patient of yours, not in the system, it seems like there are still some barriers to to make this as easy as possible. Yeah, e-prescribing has actually made it a lot trickier. And again, this is why knowing sort of your state policies and procedures and your institutional policies and procedures is really helpful. We're actually trying to get it worked out that you can just write 
expedited partner therapy on the script and then you're done. So you don't need the name. You don't need the date of birth because I think that's a huge barrier. A lot of the time people don't want to share that information. Yeah. This is great. We've gone soup to nuts from diagnosing a kid with right lower quadrant pain to doing the anticipatory guidance after we have treated them for their atypical mycoplasma genitalium related PID with with moxifloxacin. What are some of the big take-home points that, that you want our listeners to walk away from this episode with? So, you know, I got taught in medical school, not all that wheezes is asthma, not all asthma wheezes, you know, and again, thinking about moving away from anchoring with PID diagnoses too. Not every kid who's having sex has PID, not everything in the right lower quadrant is PID, but also importantly, not all PID acts the same, right? So in a kid who does look septic, in a kid where you're worried because they have a new abdominal mass, keeping it on your differential in the weird cases as much as you're not going to anchor on it as your sole diagnosis in the common cases. I think having the tools that you need in hand to be able to to do this well is always super helpful. The CDC just updated their uh, STI, STD treatment app. And so everything that we talked about today is in that app. You can always just keep that uh, right next to you. All your clinical settings, pull it up. My husband is obsessed with that app. (laughs) It's the best app. There's a few apps that I use all the time, and I do this every day, and I still use the app. And I think the last thing is centering the patient, you know, so making sure that this is a diagnosis that could be stigmatizing for a lot of young people, making sure we're trauma-informed, making sure we're empowering our patients to use this as an opportunity to move to healthy behavior change, and really putting their needs at the center is a super important part of doing a good job with this care. Awesome. Um, I guess our last question is, other than the CDC's STD app, is there anything you'd like to plug? Oh, the CDC STD app, I would say we have a nice youth-focused page called I Know You Should Too. You, you know, just the letter U, like the cool kids. Two, like the number two like the cool kids do. I know you should too. Um, That has good youth-centered information. So if you have patients who are looking for more information, that's a, a great place to go as well. Nice. We'll link that in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah, and then we can be cool, like the using the letter U and the two. See, we're we're still cool. We're still cool. We're relevant. We're on TikTok. We're yeah, here. we're relevant. Yeah, we're on fleek. <laughs> uh, all right, this has been wonderful, uh, Sarah. Thank you so much for giving us your time, your expertise. I feel like we learned a lot. This is a great, great episode. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, thanks for joining us here at the Cribsiders. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Dr. Jessica Kelly, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and our newsletter. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Jess Kelly. Thank you all and good night. 
Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.